CD2 Pre-eminent amongst Rincewind's talents was his skill in running away, which over the years he had elevated to the status of a genuinely pure science. It didn't matter if you were fleeing from or to, so long as you were fleeing. It was flight alone that counted. I run, therefore I am. More correctly, I run, therefore with any luck I'll still be. But he was also skilled in languages and in practical geography. He could shout help in fourteen languages and scream for mercy in a further twelve. He had passed through many of the countries on the disc, some of them at high speed, and during the long, lovely, boring hours when he'd worked in the library, he'd whiled away the time by reading up on all the exotic and faraway places he'd never visited. He remembered that at the time he'd sighed with relief that he'd never have to visit them. And now, here he was. Jungle surrounded him. It wasn't nice, interesting, open jungles such as leopard-skin-clad heroes might swing through, but serious, real jungle, jungle that towered up like solid slabs of greenness, thorned and barbed, jungle in which every representative of the vegetable kingdom had really rolled up its bark and got down to the strenuous business of outgrowing all competitors. The soil was hardly soil at all, but dead plants on the way to composthood. Water dripped from leaf to leaf, insects whined in the humid, spore-laden air, and there was the terrible, breathless silence made by the motors of photosynthesis running flat out. Any yodelling hero who tried to swing through that lot might just as well take his chances with a bean slicer. "'How do you do that?' said Eric. "'It's probably a knack,' said Rincewind. Eric subjected the wonders of nature to a cursory and disdainful glance. "'This doesn't look like a kingdom,' he complained. "'You said we could go to a kingdom. Do you call this a kingdom?' "'This is probably the rainforests of Clatch,' said Rincewind. "'They're stuffed full of lost kingdoms.' "'You mean mysterious ancient races of Amazonian princesses "'who subject all male prisoners to strange and exhaustive progenitative rights?' "'said Eric, his glasses beginning to fog. "'Ha-ha,' said Rincewind stonily. "'What an imagination a child has.' "'What's name, what's name, what's name?' shrieked the parrot. "'I've read all about them,' said Eric, peering into the greenery. "'Of course, I own those kingdoms as well.' "'He stared at some private inner vision. "'Gosh!' he said hungrily. "'I should concentrate on the tribute if I was you,' said Rincewind, setting off down what was possibly a path. The brightly coloured blooms on a tree nearby turned to watch him go. In the jungles of Central Clatch there are indeed lost kingdoms of mysterious Amazonian princesses who capture male explorers for specifically masculine duties. These are indeed rigorous and exhausting, and the luckless victims do not last long.' This is because, wiring plugs, putting up shelves, sorting out the funny noise in the attics, and mowing lawns can eventually reduce even the strongest constitution. There are also hidden plateaux, where the reptilian monsters of a bygone epoch romp and play, as well as elephants' graveyards, lost diamond mines, and strange ruins decorated with hieroglyphs, the very sight of which can freeze the most valiant heart. On any reasonable map of the area, there's barely room for the trees. The few explorers who have returned have passed on a number of handy hints to those who follow after, such as 1. Avoid, if possible, any hanging down creepers with beady eyes and a forked tongue at one end. 2. Don't pick up any orange and black striped creepers that are apparently lying across the path twitching because there is often a tiger on the other end. And 3. Don't go. 
If I'm a demon, Rincewin thought hazily, why is everything stinging me and trying to trip me up? I mean, surely I can only be harmed by a wooden dagger through my heart. Or do I mean garlic? Eventually the jungle opened out into a very wide, cleared area that stretched all the way to a distant blue range of volcanoes. The land fell away below them to a patchwork of lakes and swampy fields, here and there punctuated by great stepped pyramids, each one crowned with a thin plume of smoke curling into the dawn air. The jungle track opened out into a narrow but paved road. "'Where's this, demon?' said Eric. "'It looks like one of the Tezuman kingdoms,' said Rincewind. "'They're ruled over by the great Mazuma, I think.' "'She's an Amazonian princess, is she?' "'Strangely enough, no.' You'd be astonished how many kingdoms aren't ruled by Amazonian princesses, Eric. It looks pretty primitive anyway. A bit Stone Age. The Tezuman priests have a sophisticated calendar and an advanced horology, quoted Rincewind. Oh, said Eric. Good. No, said Rincewind patiently. It means time measurement. How? Oh. You'd approve of them. They're superb mathematicians, apparently. Ha, huh, said Eric, blinking solemnly. "'Shouldn't think they've got a lot to count in a backward civilization like this.' Rincewind eyed the chariots that were heading rapidly towards them. "'I think they usually count victims,' he said. "'The Tezuman Empire in the jungle valleys of central Clatch "'is known for its organic market gardens, "'its exquisite craftsmanship in obsidian, feathers and jade, "'and its mass human sacrifices in honour of Quez over Coatl, "'the feathered boa, god of mass human sacrifices.' As they said, you always knew where you stood with Quez over Coatl. It was generally with a lot of people on top of a great stepped pyramid with someone in an elegant feathered headdress chipping an exquisite obsidian knife for your very own personal use. The Tezuman are renowned on the continent for being the most suicidally gloomy, irritable and pessimistic people you could ever hope to meet, for reasons that may soon be made clear. It was true about the time measurement as well. The Tezuman had realised long ago that everything was getting steadily worse, and, having a terrible literal-mindedness, had developed a complex system to keep track of how much worse each succeeding day was. Contrary to general belief, the Tezuman did invent the wheel. They just had radically different ideas about what you used it for. It was the first chariot Rincewind had ever seen that was pulled by llamas, that wasn't what was odd about it. What was odd about it was that it was being carried by people, two holding each side of the axle and running after the animals, their sandaled feet flapping on the flagstones. "'Do you think it's got the tribute in it?' said Eric. All the leading chariot seemed to contain, apart from the driver, was a squat, basically cube-shaped man, wearing a puma-skin outfit and a feather headdress. The runners panted to a halt, and Rincewind saw that each man wore what would probably be described as a primitive sword, made by affixing shards of obsidian into a wooden club. They looked to him no less deadly than sophisticated, extremely civilised swords. In fact, they looked worse. Well, said Eric. Well, what? said Rincewind. Tell him to give me my tribute. The fat man got down ponderously, marched over to Eric, and to Rincewind's extreme surprise, grovelled. Rincewind felt something claw its way up his back and onto his shoulder, when a voice like a sheet of metal being torn in half said, "'That's better. Very wash-name, comfy. If you try to knock me off, demon, you can wash-name your ear goodbye. What a turn-up for the scrolls, eh? They seem to be expecting him.' "'Why do you keep saying wash-name?' said Rincewind. 
Limited wasp name, doodah, thingy, you know. It's got words in it, said the parrot. Dictionary, said Rincewind. The passengers in the other chariots had got out and were also grovelling to Eric, who was beaming like an idiot. The parrot considered this. Yeah, probably, it said. I've got to wing it to you, it went on. I thought you were a bit of a wasp name at the start, but you seem to be delivering the wasp name. Damon, said Eric airily. Yes. What are they saying? Can't you speak their language? Er, uh, no, said Rincewind. I can read it, though, he called out as Eric turned away. If you could just sort of make signs for them to write it down. It was around noon. In the jungle behind Rincewind, creatures whooped and gibbered. Mosquitoes the size of hummingbirds whined around his head. Of course, he said for the tenth time, they've never really got round to inventing paper. The stonemason stood back, handed the latest blunted obsidian chisel to his assistant, and gave Rincewind an expectant look. Rincewind stood back and examined the rock critically. It's very good, he said. I mean, it's a very good likeness. You've got his hairstyle and everything. Of course, he's not as, um, square as that normally, but yes, very good. And here's the chariot, and here's the step pyramids, yes. Well, it looks as though they want you to go to the city with them, he said to Eric. Tell them yes, said Eric firmly. Rincewind turned to the head man. Yes, he said. Hunched figure in triple feathered headdress over three dots. Rincewind sighed. Without saying a word, the stonemason put a fresh stone chisel into his unresisting fingers and manhandled a new slab of granite into position. One of the problems of being a Tesuman, apart from having a godlike quez over coatl, is that if you unexpectedly need to order an extra pint of milk tomorrow, you probably should have started writing the note for the milkman last month. Tesuman are the only people who beat themselves to death with their own suicide notes. It was late afternoon by the time the chariots trotted into the slab city around the largest pyramid between lines of cheering Tesuman. This is more like it, said Eric, graciously acknowledging the cheers. They're very pleased to see us. Yes, said Rincewind gloomily. I wonder why. Well, because I'm the new ruler, of course. Hmm. Rincewind glanced sidelong at the parrot, who had been unnaturally silent for some time and was now cowering up against his ear like an elderly spinster in a strip club. It was having serious thoughts about the exquisite feather headdresses. Wash name bastards, it croaked. Any wash name lays a hand on me and that wash name is minus one finger, I'm telling you. There's something not right about this, said Rincewind. What's that? said the parrot. Everything. I'm telling you, one feather out of place. Rincewind wasn't used to people being pleased to see him. It was unnatural and boded no good. These people were not only cheering, they were throwing flowers and hats. The hats were made out of stone, but the thought was there. Rincewind thought they were rather odd hats. They didn't have crowns. They were, in fact, mere discs with holes in the middle. The procession trotted up the wide avenues of the city to a cluster of buildings at the foot of the pyramid, where another group of civic dignitaries was waiting for them. They were wearing lots of jewellery. It was all basically the same. There are quite a lot of uses to which you can put a stone disc with a hole in the middle, and the Tesuman had explored all but one of them. More important, though, were the boxes and boxes of treasure stacked in front of them. They were stuffed with jewels. Eric's eyes widened. "'The tribute,' he said. 
Rincewind gave up. It really was working. He didn't know how, he didn't know why, but at last it was all going right. The setting sun glinted off a dozen fortunes. Of course it belonged to Eric, presumably, but maybe there was enough for him, too. Naturally, he said weakly. What else did you expect? And there was feasting and long speeches that Rincewind couldn't understand, but which were punctuated with cheers and nods and bows in Eric's direction. And there were long recitals of Tesuman music, which sounds like someone clearing a particularly difficult nostril. Rincewind left Eric sitting proudly enthroned in the firelight and wandered disconsolately across to the pyramid. "'I was enjoying the wasp name,' said the parrot reproachfully. "'I can't settle down,' said Rincewind. "'I'm sorry,' But this sort of thing has never happened to me before, all the jewels and things. Everything going as expected. It's not right. He looked up the monstrous face of the steep pyramid, red and flickering in the firelight. Every huge block was carved with a bas-relief of Tesumen doing terribly inventive things to their enemies. It suggested that the Tesumen, whatever sterling qualities they possessed, were not traditionally inclined to welcome perfect strangers and heap them with jewels. The overall effect of the great heap of carvings was very artistic. It was just the details that were horrible. While working his way along the wall, he came to a huge door, which artistically portrayed a group of prisoners apparently being given a complete medical checkup. But from a distance it did anyway. Close to? No. It opened into a short, torch-lit tunnel. Rincewind took a few steps along it, telling himself he could always hurry out again, and came out into a lofty space which occupied most of the inside of the pyramid. There were more torches all around the walls, which illuminated everything quite well. That wasn't really welcome, because what they mainly illuminated was a giant-sized statue of Quez over Coatl, the feathered boa. If you had to be in a room with that statue, you'd prefer it to be pitch dark. Or, then again, perhaps not. A better option would be to put the thing in a darkened room while you had insomnia a thousand miles away, trying to forget what it looked like. It's just a statue, Rincewind told himself. It's not real. They just use their imagination, that's all. What the wasp name is it? said the parrot. It's their god. Get away! No, really. It's Quez over Coatl. Half man, half chicken, half jaguar, half serpent, half scorpion and half mad. The parrot's beak moved as it worked this out. "'That makes a wasp name total of three homicidal maniacs,' it said. "'About right, yes,' said the statue. "'On the other hand,' said Rincewind instantly, "'I do think it's frightfully important for people to have the right to worship in their own special way, "'and now I think we'll just be going, so just—' uh, "'Please don't leave me here,' said the statue. "'Please take me with you.' "'Could be tricky, could be tricky,' Rincewind said hurriedly, backing away. "'It's not me, you understand. "'It's just that where I come from, everyone has this racial prejudice thing "'against thirty-foot-high people with fangs and talons and necklaces of skulls all over them. "'I just think you'll have trouble fitting in.' "'The parrot tweaked his ear. "'It's coming from behind the statue, you stupid wasp name!' it croaked. "'It turned out to be coming from a hole in the floor.' A pale face peered short-sightedly up at Rincewind from the depths of a pit. It was an elderly, good-natured face with a faintly worried expression. "'Hello?' said Rincewind. "'You don't know what it means to hear a friendly voice again,' 
said the face, breaking into a grin. "'If you could just sort of help me up.' "'Sorry?' said Rincewind. "'You're a prisoner, are you?' "'Alas, there, this is so. "'I don't know that I ought to go around rescuing prisoners just like that,' said Rincewind. "'I mean, you might have done anything. "'I am entirely innocent of all crimes, I assure you.' "'Ah, well, so you say,' said Rincewind gravely. "'But if the Tesimen have judged—' "'Wastain, wastain, wastain!' shrieked the parrot in his ear as it bounced up and down on his shoulder. "'Haven't you got the faintest? Where have you been? He's a prisoner, a prisoner in a temple. You've got to rescue prisoners in temples. That's what they're bloody there for.' "'No, it isn't,' snapped Rincewind. "'That's all you know. He's probably here to be sacrificed. Isn't that right?' He looked at the prisoner for confirmation. The face nodded. "'Indeed you are correct. Flayed alive, in fact.' "'There,' said Rincewind to the parrot. "'See?' "'You think you know everything. He's here to be flayed alive. "'Every inch of skin removed to the accompaniment of exquisite pain,' added the prisoner helpfully. Rincewind paused. He thought he knew the meaning of the word exquisite, and it didn't seem to belong anywhere near pain. "'What? Every bit?' he said. "'This is apparently the case. Gosh!' "'What was it you did?' the prisoner sighed. "'You'd never believe me.' he said. The demon king let the mirror darken and drummed his fingers on his desk for a moment. Then he picked up a speaking tube and blew into it. Eventually, a distant voice said, Yes, Gov? Yes, sir, snapped the king. The distant voice muttered something. Yes, sir, it added. Do we have a quez over coatl working here? Oh, see, Gov. The voice faded, came back. Yes, Gov. "'Is he a duke, earl, count, or baron?' said the king. "'No, Gov.' "'Well, what is he?' There was a long silence at the other end. "'Well?' said the king. "'He's no one much, Gov.' The king glared at the tube for some time. "'You try,' he thought. "'You make proper plans. You try to get organised. You try to help people. And this is what you get.' "'Send him to see me,' he said. Outside, the music rose to a crescendo and stopped. The fires crackled. From the distant jungles, a thousand glowing eyes watched the proceedings. The high priest stood up and made a speech. Eric beamed like a pumpkin. A long line of Tesimen brought baskets of jewels which they scattered before him. Then the high priest made a second speech. This one seemed to end on a question. "'Fine!' said Eric. Jolly good, keep it up. He scratched his ear and ventured, You can all have a half-holiday. The high priest repeated the question again in a slightly impatient tone of voice. I'm the one, yes, said Eric, just in case they were unclear. You've got it exactly right. The high priest spoke again. This time there was no slightly about it. Let's just run through this again, shall we? said the demon king. He leaned back in his throne. You happened to find the Tesimen one day and decided, I think I recall your words correctly, that they were a bunch of Stone Age no-hopers sitting around in a swamp being no trouble to anyone, am I right? Whereupon you entered the mind of one of their high priests. I believe at that time they worshipped a small stick, drove him insane and inspired the tribes to unite, 
terrorize their neighbors and bring forth upon the continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men should be taken to the top of ceremonial pyramids and be chopped up with stone knives. The king pulled his notes towards him. Oh, yes, some of them were also to be flayed alive, he added. Quez over Quattle shuffled his feet. Whereupon, said the king, they immediately engaged in a prolonged war with just about everyone else, bringing death and destruction to thousands of moderately blameless people, etc., etc. Now look, this sort of thing has got to stop. Quez over Coattle swayed back a bit. It was only, you know, an oppie, said the imp. I thought, you know, it was the right thing sort of thing. Death and destruction and that. You did, did you? said the king. Thousands of more or less innocent people dying. Straight out of our hands. He snapped his fingers. Just like that. Straight off to their happy hunting ground or whatever. That's the trouble with you people. You don't think of the big picture. I mean, look at the testament. Gloomy, unimaginative, obsessive. By now they could have invented a whole bureaucracy and taxation system that would have turned the minds of the continent to slag. Instead of which, they're just a bunch of second-rate axe murderers. What a waste! Quez over Coattle squirmed. The king swivelled the throne back and forth a bit. Now I want you to go straight back down there and tell them you're sorry, he said. Pardon? Tell them you've changed your mind. Tell them that what you really wanted them to do was strive day and night to improve the lot of their fellow men. It'll be a winner. What? said Quezover Quattle, looking extremely shifty. You want me to manifest myself? They've seen you already, haven't they? I saw the statue. It's very lifelike. Well, yes, I've appeared in dreams and that, said the demon uncertainly. Right, then. Get on with it. Quez over Coattle was clearly unhappy about something. Eh, he said. You want me to actually materialize sort of thing? I mean, actually sort of turn up on the spot? Yes. Oh. The prisoner dusted himself down and extended a wrinkled hand to Rincewind. Many thanks. Ponce Daquirm, he said. Pardon? It's my name. Oh, it's a proud old name, said Daquirm, searching Rincewind's eyes for any traces of mockery. Fine, said Rincewind blankly. We were searching for the fountain of youth, Daquirm went on. Rincewind looked him up and down. Any luck? he said politely. Not as significantly, no. Rincewind peered back down into the pit. You said we, he said. Where's everyone else? They got religion. Rincewind looked up at the statue of Quez over Coattle. It took no imagination whatsoever to imagine what kind. I think, he said carefully, that we had better go. Too true said the old man, and, and quickly, too, before the ruler of the world turns up. Rincewind went cold. 
It starts, he thought. I knew it was all going to turn out badly, and this is where it starts. I must have an instinct for these things. How do you know about that? he said. Oh, they've got this prophecy. Well, not a prophecy, really. It's more the entire history of the world start to finish. It's written all over this pyramid, said de Quirm cheerfully. My word, I wouldn't like to be the ruler when he arrives. They've got plans. Eric stood up. Now, just you listen to me, he said. I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing. I'm your ruler, you know. Rincewind stared at the blocks nearest the statue. It had taken the Tesimen two stories, twenty years and ten thousand tons of granite to explain what they intended to do to the ruler of the world, but the result was, well, graphic. He would be left in no doubt that they were annoyed. He might even go so far as to deduce that they were quite vexed. "'But why do they give him all the jewels to start with?' he said, pointing. "'Well, he is the ruler.' said de Quirm. He's entitled to some respect, I suppose. Rincewind nodded. There was a sort of justice in it. If you were a tribe who lived in a swamp in the middle of a damp forest, didn't have any metal, had been saddled with a god like Quesova Coatl, and then found someone who said he was in charge of the whole affair, you probably would want to spend some time explaining to him how incredibly disappointed you were. The Tesuman had never seen any reason to be subtle in dealing with deities. It was a very good likeness of Eric. His eye followed the story onto the next wall. This block showed a very good likeness of Rincewind. He had a parrot on his shoulder. Hang on, he said, that's me. You should see what they're doing to you on the next block, said the parrot smugly. It'll turn your wasp name. Rincewind looked at the block. His wasp name revolved. We'll just leave very quietly, he said firmly. I mean, we won't stop to thank them for the meal. "'We can always send them a letter later. "'You know, so as not to be impolite.' "'Just a moment,' said de Quirm, "'as Rincewind dragged at his arm. "'I haven't had a chance to read all the blocks yet. "'I want to see how the world's going to end. "'How it's going to end for everyone else, I don't know,' "'said Rincewind grimly, dragging him down the tunnel. "'I know how it's going to end for me.' "'He stepped out into the dawn light, which was fine. "'Where he went wrong was stepping into a semicircle of Tesimon. "'They had spears.' They had exquisitely chipped obsidian spearheads, which, like their swords, were nowhere near as sophisticated as ordinary, coarse, inferior steel weapons. Was it better to know that you were going to be skewered by delicate examples of genuine ethnic origin, rather than nasty forge-made items hammered out by people not in contact with the cycles of nature? Probably not, Rincewind decided. "'I always say,' said de Quirm, "'that there is a good side to everything.' "'Rincewind, trust to the next slab, "'turned his head with difficulty. "'Where is it at the moment, precisely?' he said. "'De Quirm squinted down across the swamps and the forest roof. "'Well, it's a first-class view from up here to begin with.' "'Oh, good,' said Rincewind. "'You know, I never would have looked at it like that. "'You're absolutely right.' It's the kind of view you'll remember for the rest of your life, I expect. I mean, it's not as if it'll be any great feat of recollection. There's no need to be sarcastic. I was only passing a remark. I want my mum, said Eric from the middle slab. Chin up, lad, said de Quirm. At least you're being sacrificed for something worthwhile. I just suggested they tried using the wheels upright so they'd roll. I'm afraid they're not very responsive to new ideas round here. Still, nil desperandum, where there's life there's hope. 
Rincewind growled. If there was one thing he couldn't stand, it was people who were fearless in the face of death. It seemed to strike at something absolutely fundamental in him. In fact, said de Quirm, I think... He rolled from side to side experimentally, tugging at the vines which were holding him down. Yes, I think that when they did these ropes up... Yes, definitely, they... What, what, said Rincewind. Yes, definitely, said de Quirm. I'm absolutely sure about it. They did them up very tightly and professionally. Not an inch of give in them anywhere. Thank you, said Rincewind. The flat top of the truncated pyramid was in fact quite large, with plenty of room for statues, priests, slabs, gutters, knife-chipping production lines, and all the other things the Tessiman needed for the bulk disposal of religion. In front of Rincewind, several priests were busy chanting a long list of complaints about swamps, mosquitoes, lack of metal ore, volcanoes, the weather, the way obsidian never kept its edge, the trouble with having a godlike Quesover coatl, the way wheels never worked properly, however often you laid them flat and pushed them, and so on. The prayers of most religions generally praise and thank the gods involved, either out of general piety or in the hope that he or she will take the hint and start acting responsibly. The Tesumen, having taken a long, hard look around their world and decided bluntly that things were just about as bad as they were ever going to get, had perfected the art of plain-chant whinge. "'Won't be long now,' said the parrot, from its perch atop a statue of one of the Tesumen's lesser gods. It had got there by a complicated sequence of events that had involved a lot of squawking, a cloud of feathers and three Tesumen priests with badly swollen thumbs. "'The high priest is just performing a wasp name in honour of Quesova Quattle,' it went on conversationally. "'You've drawn quite a crowd.' "'I suppose you wouldn't kind of hop down here and bite through these ropes, would you?' said Rincewind. "'Not a chance,' thought so. "'Sun's coming up soon,' the parrot continued. Rincewind felt that it sounded unnecessarily cheerful. "'I'm going to complain about this, demon,' moaned Eric. "'You wait till my mother finds out. My parents have got influence, you know.' "'Oh, good,' said Rincewind weakly. "'Why don't you tell the high priest that if he cuts your heart out, she'll be right down to the school tomorrow to complain?' The Tesiman priests bowed towards the sun, and all eyes in the crowd below turned to the jungle. "'Where something was happening.' There was a sound of crackling undergrowth. Tropical birds erupted through the trees, shrieking. Rincewind, of course, could not see this. "'You never should have wanted to be ruler of the world,' he said. "'I mean, what did you expect? You can't expect people to be happy about seeing you. No one ever is when the landlord turns up.' "'But they're going to kill me!' "'It's just their way of saying that, metaphorically. They're fed up with waiting for you to repaint the place and see to the drains.' The whole jungle was in uproar now. Animals exploded out of the bushes as if running from a fire. A few heavy thumps indicated that trees were falling over. At last, a frantic jaguar crashed through the undergrowth and loped down the causeway. The luggage was a few feet behind it. It was covered with creepers, leaves and the feathers of various rare jungle fowls, some of which were now even rarer. The jaguar could have avoided it by zigging or zagging to either side, but sheer idiot terror prevented it. It made the mistake of turning its head to see what was behind it. This was the last mistake it ever made. "'You know that box of yours?' said the parrot. "'What about it?' said Rincewind. "'It's headed this way.' The priests peered down at the running figure far below. The luggage had a straightforward way of dealing with things between it and its intended destination. It ignored them. It was at this moment 
against all his instincts, in great trepidation and, most unfortunately of all, in deep ignorance of what was happening, that Quez Overquattle himself chose to materialise on top of the pyramid. Several of the priests noticed him. The knives fell from their fingers. Eh, squeaked the demon. Other priests turned around. Right, now I want you all to pay attention, squeaked Quez Overquattle, cupping its tiny hands around its main mouth in an effort to be heard. This was very embarrassing. He'd enjoyed being the Tesiman god. He'd been really impressed by their single-minded devotion to duty. He'd been very gratified by the incredible lifelike statue in the pyramid, and it really hurt to have to reveal that, in one important particular, it was incorrect. He was six inches high. Now then, he began, this is very important. Unfortunately, no one ever found out why. At that moment, the luggage breasted the top of the pyramid, its legs whirring like propellers, and landed squarely on the slabs. There was a brief, flat squeak. It was a funny old world, said the Quirm. You had to laugh, really. If you didn't, you'd go mad, wouldn't you? One minute strapped to a slab and about to undergo exquisite torture, the next being given a breakfast, a change of clothes, a hot tub and a free lift out of the kingdom. It made you believe there was a god. Of course, the Tesiman knew there was a god, and that he was currently a small and distressing greasy patch on top of the pyramid, which left them with a bit of a problem. The luggage squatted in the city's main plaza. The entire priesthood was sitting around it and watching it carefully, in case it did anything amusing or religious. "'Are you going to leave it behind?' said Eric. "'It's not as simple as that,' said Rincewind. "'It generally catches up. Let's just go away quickly. "'But we'll take the tribute, won't we?' "'I think that could be an amazingly bad idea,' said Rincewind. "'Let's just quietly go while they're in a good temper. "'The novelty will wear off soon, I expect.' "'And I've got to get on with my search for the Fountain of Youth,' said De Quirm. "'Oh, yes,' said Rincewind. "'I've devoted my whole life to it, you know,' said the old man proudly. "'Rincewind looked him up and down. "'Really?' he said. "'Oh, yes, exclusively, ever since I was a boy.' Rincewind's expression was one of acute puzzlement. "'In that case,' he began, in the manner of one talking to a child, "'wouldn't it have been better, you know, more sensible, "'if you just got on with—' "'What?' said De Quirm. "'Oh, never mind,' said Rincewind. "'I'll tell you what, though,' he added. "'I think, in order to prevent you getting, you know, bored—' "'We should present you with this wonderful talking parrot.' "'He made a swift grab, while keeping his thumbs firmly out of harm's way. "'It's a jungle fowl,' he said. "'Cruel to subject it to city life, isn't it?' "'I was born in a cage, you raving what's-name!' screamed the parrot. "'Rincewind faced it, nose to beak. "'It's that, or fricassee time,' he said. "'The parrot opened its beak to bite his nose, "'saw his expression, and thought better of it. "'Polly want a biscuit?' It managed, adding sotto voce, "'What's name, what's name, what's name, what's name?' "'A dear little bird of my very own,' said De Quirm. "'I shall look after it. "'What's name, what's name, what's name?' They reached the jungle. A few minutes later, the luggage trotted after them. It was noon in the kingdom of Tezua. From inside the main pyramid came the sounds of a very large statue being dismantled. The priests sat around thoughtfully. Occasionally, one of them stood up and made a short speech. 
it was clear that points were being made. For example, how the economics of the kingdom depended on a buoyant obsidian knife industry, how the enslaved neighbouring kingdoms had come to rely on the smack of firm government, and incidentally on the hack, slash and disembowelling of firm government as well, and on the terrible fate that awaited any people who didn't have gods. Godless people might get up to anything. They might turn against the fine old traditions of thrift and non-self-sacrifice that had made the kingdom what it was today. They might start wondering why, if they didn't have a god, they needed all those priests. Anything. The point was well put by Mazuma, the head priest, when he said, Squashed figure with broken nose, jaguar claw, three feathers, stylized spiny anteater. After a while, a vote was taken. By nightfall, the kingdom's leading stonemasons were at work on a new statue. It was basically oblong, with lots of legs. The demon king drummed his fingers on his desk. It wasn't that he was unhappy about the fate of Quez Overcoatl, who would now have to spend several centuries in one of the nether hells while he grew a new corporeal body. Serve him right, the ghastly little imp. Nor was it the broad trend of events on the pyramid. After all, the whole point of the wish business was to see to it that what the client got was exactly what he asked for and exactly what he didn't really want. It was just that he didn't feel in control of things. Which was, of course, ridiculous. If the best came to the best, he could always materialise and sort things out personally. But he liked people to believe that all the bad things happening to them were just fate and destiny. It was one of the few things that cheered him up. He turned back to the mirror. After a while, he had to adjust the temporal control. One minute, the breathless, humid jungles of Clatch. The next, I thought we were going to go back to my room, Eric complained. I thought that too, said Rincewind, shouting to be heard over the rumbling. Snap your fingers again, demon. Not on your life. There's plenty of places worse than this. But it's all hot and dark. Rincewind had to concede that. It was also shaking and noisy. When his eyes grew used to the blackness, he could make out a few spots of light here and there, whose dim radiance suggested that they were inside something like a boat. There was a definite feel of carpentry about everything, and a powerful smell of wood shavings and glue. If it was a boat, then it was having an awfully painful launching down a slipway greased with rocks. A jolt slung him heavily against a bulkhead. "'I must say,' complained Eric. If this is where the most beautiful woman in the world lives, I don't think much of her choice of boudoir. You'd think she'd put a few cushions or something around the place. Boudoir? said Rincewind. She's bound to have one, said Eric smugly. I've read about them. She reclines on it. Tell me, said Rincewind, have you ever felt the need to have a cold bath and a brisk run around the playing fields? Never. It could be worth a try. The rumbling stopped abruptly. There was a distant clanging noise, such as might be made by a pair of great big gates being shut. Rincewind thought he heard some voices fading into the distance, and a chuckle. It wasn't a particularly pleasant chuckle. It was more of a snigger, and it boded no good for someone. Rincewind had a pretty good idea who. He'd stopped wondering how he'd come to be here, wherever it was. Malign forces, that was probably it. At least nothing particularly dreadful was happening to him right now. Probably it was only a matter of time. 
He groped around a bit until his fingers encountered what turned out to be, following an inspection by the light of the nearest knothole, a rope ladder. Further probing at one end of the hull, or whatever it was, brought him in contact with a small round hatchway. It was bolted on the inside. He crawled back to Eric. There's a door, he whispered. Where does it go? It stays where it is, I think, said Rincewind. Find out where it leads to, demon. Could be a bad idea, said Rincewind cautiously. Get on with it. Rincewind crawled gloomily to the hatch and grasped the bolt. The hatch creaked open. Down below, quite a long way below, there were damp cobblestones, across which a breeze was driving a few shreds of morning mist. With a little sigh, Rincewind unrolled the ladder. Two minutes later, they were standing in the gloom of what appeared to be a large plaza. A few buildings showed through the mist. "'Where are we?' said Eric. "'Search me.' "'You don't know?' "'Not a clue,' said Rincewind. Eric glared at the mist-shrouded architecture. "'Fat chance of finding the most beautiful woman in the world in a dump like this,' he said. It occurred to Rincewind to see what they had just climbed out of. He looked up. Above them, a long way above them, and supported on four massive legs which ran down to a huge wheeled platform, there was undoubtedly a huge wooden horse. More correctly, the rear of a huge wooden horse. The builder could have put the exit hatch in a more dignified place, but for humorous reasons of his own had apparently decided not to. Um, said Rincewind. Someone coughed. He looked down. The evaporating mists now revealed a broad circle of armed men, many of them grinning and all of them carrying mass-produced, soulless, but above all sharp, long spears. Ah, said Rincewind. He looked back up at the hatchway. It said it all, really. The only thing I don't understand, said the sergeant of the guard, is why two of you? We were expecting maybe a hundred. He leaned back on his stool, his great plumed helmet in his lap, a pleased smile on his face. Honestly, you were Phoebians, he said. Talk about laugh. You must think we was born yesterday. All night, nothing but soaring and hammering. The next thing, there's a damn great wooden horse outside the gates. So I think, that's funny. A bloody great wooden horse with air holes. That's the kind of little detail I notice, see? Air holes. So I must draw the lads and we nips out extra early and drag it in the gates, as per expectations. And then we bides quiet-like around it, waiting to see what it coughs up, in a manner of speaking. Nah! He pushed his unshaven face close to Rincewind. You've got a choice, see? Top seat or bottom seat, it's up to you. I just have to put the word in. You play discus with me and I'll play discus with you. Uh, ball games were unknown in the disc world at this time. What seat? said Rincewind, reeling from the gusts of garlic. It's the war triremes, said the sergeants cheerfully. Three seats, see, one above the other. Triremes. You get chained to the oars for years, see, and it's all according to whether you're in the top seat, up in the fresh air and that, or the bottom seat where, he grinned, you're not. So it's down to you, lads. Be cooperative, and all you'll need to worry about will be the seagulls. Nah. Why only the two of you? He leaned back again. Excuse me, said Eric. Is that sort by any chance? 
You wouldn't be trying to make fun of me, would you now, boy? Only there's such a thing as quinkerim, see? You wouldn't like that at all. No, sir, said Eric. If you please, sir, I'm just a little lad led astray by bad companionship. Oh, thank you, said Rincewind bitterly. You just accidentally drew a lot of occult circles, did you, and... Sarge, Sarge! A soldier burst into the guardroom. The sergeant looked up. There's another of them, Sarge, right outside the gates this time. The sergeant grinned triumphantly at Rincewind. Oh, that's it, is it, he said. You were just the advance party come to open the gates or whatever. Right. We'll just go and sort your friends out and we'll be right back. He indicated the captives. You stay here. If they move, do something horrible to them. Rincewind and Eric were left alone with the guard. You know what you've done, don't you? said Eric. You've only gone and taken us all the way back to the Tesortian Wars. Thousands of years. We did it at school. The wooden horse, everything. How the beautiful Eleanor was kidnapped from the Ephebians, or maybe it was by the Ephebians, and there was this siege to get her back and everything. He paused. Hey, that means I'm going to meet her. He paused again. Wow, he said. Rincewind looked around the room. It didn't look ancient, but then it wouldn't, because it wasn't yet. Everywhere in time was now, once you were there, or then. He tried to remember what little he knew of classical history, but it was just a confusion of battles, one-eyed giants, and women launching thousands of ships with their faces. Don't you say, hissed Eric, his glasses aglow, they must have brought the horse in before the soldiers are hidden in it. We know what's going to happen. We could make a fortune. How exactly? Well... The boy hesitated. We could bet on horses, sort of thing. Great idea, said Rincewind. Yes, and all we've got to do is escape, then find out if they have horse races here, and then try really hard to remember the names of the horses that won races in sort thousands of years ago. They went back to looking glumly at the floor. That was the thing about time travel. You were never ready for it. About the only thing he could hope for, Rincewind decided, was finding de Quirm's fountain of youth and managing to stay alive for a few thousand years so he'd be ready to kill his own grandfather, which was the only aspect of time travel that had ever remotely appealed to him. He had always felt that his ancestors had it coming to them. Funny thing, though, he could remember the famous wooden horse, which had been used to trick away into the fortified city. He didn't remember anything about there being two of them. There was something inevitable about the next thought that turned up. Excuse me, he said to the guard, this, er, this second wooden thing outside the gates, it's probably not a horse, I expect. Well, of course you'd know about that, wouldn't you, said the guard. You're spies. I bet it's more oblong and sort of smaller, said Rincewind, his face a picture of innocent inquiry. You bet. Pretty unimaginative bastards, aren't you? I see. Rincewind folded his hands on his lap. Try to escape, said the guard. Go on, just try it. You try it and see what happens. I expect your colleagues will be bringing it into the city, Rincewind went on. They might do, the guard conceded. Eric began to giggle. It had begun to dawn on the guard that there was a lot of shouting going on in the distance. Someone had tried to blow a bugle, but the notes gurgled into silence after a few bars. Bit of a fight going on out there by the sound of it, said Rincewind. People winning their spurs, doing heroic deeds of valour being noticed by superior officers, that sort of thing. 
and here's you hanging around in here with us. I've got to stick by me post, said the guard. Exactly the right attitude, said Rincewind. Never mind about everyone else out there fighting valiantly to defend their city and women folk against the foe. You stop it here and guard us. That's the spirit. They'll probably put up a statue to you in City Square if there's one left. He did his duty, they'll write on it. The soldier appeared to think about this, and while he was doing so there was a terrible splintering creak from the direction of the main gates. Look, he said desperately, if I just pop out for a minute. Don't you worry about us, said Rincewind encouragingly. It's not even as if we're armed. Right, said the soldier. Thanks. He gave Rincewind a worried smile and hurried off in the direction of the noise. Eric looked at Rincewind with something like admiration. That was actually quite amazing, he said. Going to go a long way, that lad, said Rincewind. A sound military thinker if ever I saw one. Come on, let's run away. Where to? Rincewind sighed. He tried to make his basic philosophy clear time and again, and people never got the message. Don't you worry about two, he said. In my experience, that always takes care of itself. The important word is away. The captain raised his head cautiously over the barricade and snarled. It's just a little box, sergeant, he snapped. It's not even as if it could hold one or two men. Big pardon, sir, said the sergeant, and his face was the face of a man whose world has changed a lot in a few short minutes. It holds at least four, sir. Corporal Disuse and his squad, sir. I sent them out to open it, sir. Are you drunk, sergeant? Not yet, sir, said the sergeant, with feeling. Little boxes don't eat people, sergeant. After that it got angry, sir. You can see what it did to the gates. The captain peered over the broken timbers again. I suppose it grew legs and walked over there, did it? He said sarcastically. The sergeant broke into a relieved grin. At last they seemed to be on the same wavelength. Got it in one, sir, he said. Legs, hundreds of the little bleeders, sir. The captain glared at him. The sergeant put on the poker face which has been handed down from NCO to NCO ever since one proto-amphibian told another lower-ranking proto-amphibian to muster a squad of newts and take that beach. The captain was eighteen and fresh from the academy, where he had passed with flying colours in such subjects as classical tactics, valedictory odes and military grammar. The sergeant was fifty-five and instead of an education he had spent about forty years attacking or being attacked by harpies, humans, cyclopses, furies, and horrible things on legs. He felt put upon. "'Well, I'm going to have a look at it, Sergeant.' "'Not a good plan, sir, if I may. "'And after I've had a look at it, Sergeant, there is going to be trouble.' The sergeant threw him a salute. "'Right you are, sir,' he predicted. The captain snorted and climbed over the barricade towards the box, which sat silent and unmoving in its circle of devastation. The sergeant, meanwhile, slid into a sitting position behind the stoutest timber he could find, and with great determination pulled his helmet down hard over his ears. Rincewind crept through the streets of the city, with Eric tagging along behind. "'Are we going to find Eleanor?' the boy said. "'No,' said Rincewind firmly. "'What we're going to do is we're going to find another way out.' and we're going to go out through it. That's not fair. She's thousands of years older than you. I mean, attraction of the mature woman, all right, but it would never work out. I demand that you take me to her, wailed Eric. Avaunt! Rincewind stopped so sharply that Eric walked into him. Listen, he said. 
We're in the middle of the most famously fatuous war there has ever been. Any minute now, thousands of warriors will be locked in mortal combat, and you want me to go and find this overrated female and say, My friend wants to know if you'll go out with him. Well, I won't. Rincewind stalked up to another gateway in the city wall. It was smaller than the main one, and didn't have any guards, and had a wicket gate in it. Rincewind slid back the bolts. This isn't anything to do with us, he said. We haven't even been born yet. We're not old enough to fight. It isn't our business, and we're not going to do anything more to upset the course of history. All right. He opened the door, which saved the entire Ephebian army a bit of effort. They were just about to knock. All day long the noise of battle raged. This was chronicled by later historians, who went on at length about beautiful women being kidnapped, fleets being assembled, wooden animals being constructed, heroes fighting one another, and completely failed to mention the part played by Rincewind, Eric and the luggage. The Ephebians did notice, however, how enthusiastically the Tessortian soldiery ran towards them, not so much keen to get into battle as very anxious to get away from something else. The historians also failed to note another interesting fact about ancient Clatchian warfare, which was that it was still at that stage quite primitive, and just between soldiers, and hadn't yet been thrown open to the general public. Basically, everyone knew that one side or the other would win. A few unlucky generals would get their heads chopped off, large sums of money would be paid in tribute to the winners, everyone would go home for the harvest, and that bloody woman would have to make her mind up whose side she was on, the hussy. So Tsortian street life went on more or less as normal, with the citizens stepping around the occasional knots of fighting men or trying to sell them kebabs. Several of the more enterprising ones began dismantling the wooden horse for souvenirs. Rincewind didn't attempt to understand it. He sat down at a street café and watched a spirited battle take place between market stalls, so that amid the cries of, Ripe olives! There was the screams of the wounded and shouts of, Mind your backs, please! Melee coming through! The hard part was watching the soldiers apologise when they bumped into customers. The even harder part was getting the café owner to accept a coin bearing the head of someone whose great-great-great-great-grandfather wasn't born yet. Fortunately, Rincewind was able to persuade the man that the future was another country. Oh, and a lemonade for the boy, he added. My parents let me drink wine, said Eric. I'm allowed one glass. I'll bet you are, said Rincewind. The owner industriously swabbed the tabletop, spreading its coating of dregs and spilt retsina into a thin varnish. "'Up for the fight, are you?' he said. "'In a manner of speaking,' said Rincewind guardedly. "'I shouldn't wander around too much,' said the owner. "'They do say a civilian let the Ephebians in. Not that I've got anything against Ephebians, a fine body of men,' he added hurriedly, as a knot of soldiery jogged past. "'A stranger, they say.' That's cheating, using civilians. There's people out looking for him so's they can explain. He made a chopping motion with his hand. Rincewind stared at the hand as though hypnotised. Eric opened his mouth. Eric screeched and clutched at his shins. Have they got a description? Rincewind said. Don't think so. Well, best of luck to them, said Rincewind rather more cheerfully. What's up with the lad? Cramp. When the man had gone back behind his counter, Eric hissed, "'You didn't have to go and kick me.' "'You're quite right. It was an entirely voluntary act on my part.' A heavy hand dropped onto Rincewind's shoulder. He looked around and up into the face of an Ephebian centurion. A soldier beside him said, "'That's the one, Sarge. 
I'll bet a year's salt. Who'd have thought it? said the sergeant. He gave Rincewind an evil grin. Up we come, chummy. The chief would like a word with you.'